0: turn to John chapter 18 as we continue in our series as a as a pastor as one responsible to regularly provide messages on a Sunday morning when preparing messages, I, I do look for opportunities to find illustrations to help connect the passage of Scripture to daily life, to uh, experiences you may have. Oftentimes, those experiences can be humorous, and, and that's great. It, it just helps us understand uh, the passage, I think, more clearly. This is, and there are passages that we arrive at that should not experience any humor or illustrations because the passage just soberly speaks for itself. And that's one of those passages that we're looking at this morning. Um, Illustrations are fine, but, but humor would not be appropriate for a passage like this as we speak about the trial of Jesus Christ. Now long before there were DVD players in cars on long trips, my children would listen to cassette tapes. Uh, For those of you under 25, a cassette tape is a little square thing that goes in a machine and actually plays music and talking. Uh, Especially on long trips, Marilyn would get books on tape from the library. And as a family, we would listen to things like Little House on the Prairie or the Chronicles of Narnia. And like every story, as you're listening to the story, there's an arc to the story. It, It reaches a climax. And today, as we are studying John's gospel, as we're looking in verse Uh, In the verses in chapter 18 and 19, we are reaching the ark of John's gospel. So, read with me as I read, beginning in chapter 18 and verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. I just don't want to comment already. They've already judged him. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about you, to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Sobering words. We spent many months making our way from John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, to 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, to this historical moment where Jesus' trial takes place. We have reached the arc of John's stories. He... In this passage, John is not like Peter or Paul or James teaching us imperatives and indicatives. His narrative is, is a story. He is telling a story, a story with a purpose. It is the purpose to challenge those who are the unbelieving readers, the Jews of 2,000 years ago and the skeptics who might read this today, to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing in his name they might have life. It is also written to the believing Jew and to the Christian to broaden and strengthen our understanding of Jesus as the sovereign king and To understand the nature of the kingdom that he rules. In verse 28, we see that there are... Three major players in this drama that John records to us. Jesus, who is always center stage. There is Pilate, who is the governor. Pilate appears in every scene in this drama. And the Jewish leaders. And all have been brought together by God's sovereign plan. This is not an accidental moment. This is not just a moment in history. It is the moment in history when God in His wisdom has brought together these three groups. Jesus, Pilate, and the Jewish leaders all have been brought together because it is God's plan to redeem humanity from the ravages and slavery of sin, to redeem humanity from His righteous judgment, to redeem humanity from his eternal punishment that awaits all who reject Jesus Christ. It is this plan that is coming together at this trial. In the storytelling of this trial, the profound, there are profound theological truths that we are to learn today that we have seen earlier in John's Gospel. That, that John, in a sense, summarizes and subtly speaks about these theological truths. John begins by using Pilate in a sense, as the foil to touch on these theological truths through the the many questions he asks as Jesus is arrested, as Jesus is mocked, as he is beaten, as he is ridiculed, as he's condemned, and eventually as he is crucified. These interactions, these truths appear, these theological truths, as Pilate asks questions. In 1833, Pilate asks... So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to them, "Said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? This, this is the first accusation by the Jewish leaders that Jesus is a traitor to Rome. That's why they bring him to Pilate. They want Pilate to crucify him. They want Pilate to deal with Jesus. They want Pilate to do their dirty work. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate and accuse him of declaring himself to be a king which at this time under roman rule sedition was treason and to be seditious to to try and take over to try and claim to be king would be worthy of crucifixion barabbas was more than a robber he was a seditious traitor he was an insurrectionist he was a terrorist in our language of today. And so Pilate asked this question. But it's a question that has been resonating throughout John's Gospel. In one forty-nine, Nathanael calls Jesus the king of the Jews. And Jesus does not refute him. In 6.16, the crowd, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the crowd wants to make him king. But it's not his time. In 12.13, as he enters Jerusalem, Jesus is hailed as king. And worshipped as king. Yes, he is a king. But he's not the kind of king the Jews are accusing him of. And he's not the kind of king, as Pilate is asking him questions, he's not claiming to be king of a material kingdom. He's claiming to be king of a spiritual kingdom. Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? The second question Pilate asked him is what is truth in verse thirty eight? Who is Jesus really? Well one fourteen tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. fourteen six tells us that he is the way, the truth and the life. And yet in the midst of all this truth, Pilate rejects Jesus as Jesus shares the gospel with them. He tells them to bear witness to this truth. is why he's come into the world. And everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. How does that not remind us of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, My sheep know my voice. And yet Pilate... Arrogantly and sarcastically says, what is truth? Which is something that resonates in our day and age as well. And then he asks him another question in chapter 19, verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? (laughs) This is the foundational truth of the gospel. In John's gospel, the incarnation of Christ and Jesus' claim that he comes from God. 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 8.42, for I came from God and I am here. 16.28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. He is the Son of God who became man. Oh, these foundational truths Pilate brings out in questions. And in all of this, a trial is taking place. The Jewish believers believed that Pilate would simply sign off on their accusation. Look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. Pilate said, Why are you bringing this Jewish problem to me? And of course, the Jews respond, listen, if, if he wasn't doing something evil that was against Rome, we wouldn't be here. Pilate, do your job. Now you have to understand who Pilate is. Pilate is, is governor. But Pilate is not governor of this region because of his stellar character, because he is a successful man. He happened to marry the emperor's granddaughter. Caesar's granddaughter. Pilate, when he entered, when he came to the Jerusalem area, when he came to the Jews to rule as governor, one of the first things he did is he robbed their treasury so he could build an aqueduct. He mocked the Jews. He ridiculed the Jews. He had great disdain for the Jews. So the relationship between the Jews and Pilate is not a happy one. And so Pilate doesn't want to deal with their issues. But they know who Pilate is. They know him as a cruel and harsh man. And it's why they bring him to Jesus. Pilate has surprised them by not doing what they expected him to do. They expected him to immediately agree with their accusations, to agree with their assessment of Jesus. They expected him to crucify him. Look, as Pilate said to them in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It, do you see what they say? They don't say it is not lawful for us to have a trial and judge him. They already want to put him to death. That's why they're bringing him to Pilate. And, and, and the hypocrisy. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They didn't want to defile themselves by entering into a Gentile's home. But they were willing to put the Passover lamb to death. This is not unusual. Throughout John's gospel, they tried to put Jesus to death a number of times. In chapter 5, they wanted to put him to death. In chapter 8, they wanted to stone him. In chapter 11, they tried to put him to death once again. But now, now, God's sovereign plan is coming to pass. It is now Jesus' hour. In John 12, 32, Jesus makes. He said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Verse 32 in 18, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, the Jewish way of putting someone to death Was to stone them. They were not allowed to crucify. It had to be the Romans who put Jesus to death. Jesus predicts his death in chapter 12 when he talks about being lifted up. And in the sovereign plan of God, God orchestrates the death of Christ through this trial. By the Jews bringing him to Pilate. God, in his mysterious sovereignty, uses these men's sinful desires and decisions to orchestrate his perfect plan of salvation by positioning Jesus to be tried and to be put to death by Roman crucifixion. What an amazing turn of events! Remember in Acts chapter 8, Stephen is stoned to death by the Jews. They had the ability to put people to death. They could have stoned Jesus. Now, it would have created a problem because the Jews were not permitted by Roman law to put people to death, but they did. But here, God orchestrates Christ being crucified, being lifted up, drawing all men unto himself. Jesus' trial helps us to see the fulfillment of God's plan for his kingdom and our response to Jesus as king. That's my proposition this morning. Jesus' trial helps us to see the fulfillment of God's plan for his kingdom. And our response to Jesus as king. Four points this morning. Jesus' trial teaches us. Four things It teaches us first that Jesus is a real man. In Jesus' trial and crucifixion, the claim of John 1:14, the Incarnation, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, is supremely vindicated. Jesus truly was human. He was truly one of us. He knew all the realities of being human. Um, Particularly in this passage, Jesus understands what it is to be human. And Jesus is our companion in regards to suffering. Bruce Milne said, The presence of God in our suffering is one of the supreme distinctives of the Christian faith. At his trial, Jesus suffered precisely because he was a man. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered relationally. He is a real man. In Luke twenty-two sixty-three, before he was brought to Pilate, the Jewish leaders mocked him and beat him. In 1901, Pilate flogs Jesus. In Roman punishment, there were three types of being flogged. One was fustigation. It's a, a lighter beating. It was to put a man basically in his place for a lesser crime. There was flagellatio, a brutal flogging for more serious crimes. And then finally, verbatim. Verberatio, which was the most horrific of all, where a whip of many strands with bits of bone or lead in the ends of the, the leather strands were used. That kind of flogging often led to death. Now, in this flogging, this was actually the first of Jesus being flogged, and it was the first one Still a beating, but a lighter beating. And Pilate was doing this to simply get the Jews off his back. He wanted to deal with Jesus. He wanted to flog him. The Roman soldiers around him put a a, a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe on him. They beat him. They mock him. And Jesus is brought out before the Jewish leaders by Pilate. And he says, look, behold the man. Pilate is just simply trying to say, look, see, he's nothing. He's not a king. He's not a leader. He's just a beaten, whipped man. But it's not enough for the Jews. Jesus is suffering. He is abandoned by his closest friends. He is mocked by soldiers. He is ridiculed by Jewish leaders. He is beaten. He is displayed as a pariah in front of all these people. And Pilate brings this beaten and ridiculed man before the crowds. He is a mess. Pilate mocks him. Behold the man. He's not a king. And he reduces Jesus to nothing more than a beaten man who looks nothing like a king. Pilate wants to rid himself of this prisoner. You know, initially when Jesus was brought to Pilate, you see in the Synoptic Gospels, Pilate turned him over to Herod. He sent him to Herod to try and get rid of the problem. And Herod sends him back to Pilate and says, you deal with Jesus. Jesus. He tries again by offering to release him in 1839. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He wants to get rid of this problem. And so he, he tries to release him. And that doesn't work. And now in his final attempt, he exasperatingly tells the Jews in 1906... When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. Pilate just wants to get rid of the problem. But God's sovereign plan won't let that happen. And so this real man, this human, this word became flesh suffers horribly. Jesus is not only a real man. Jesus is our representative man. This is an integral part of our redemption that Jesus, this whole trial, is all a part of the redemptive plan of God. It's all a part of your redemption and my redemption. Jesus had to go through this He had to suffer. He was our representative and he was arraigned before the judgment seat. Look at at chapter 19, verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat and judged the Saviour. And he judged him as a criminal. He judged him as a criminal, as one accused. He judged him and condemned him to die. Pilate was his judge. But what Pilate didn't realize was that he was judging Christ. Jesus was judging him. Jesus was accused of two criminal acts punishable by death. Treason and blasphemy. Both were false accusations but as our substitute, these two criminal acts are the very ones that we must be put to death for. Because we are guilty of these crimes. We are guilty before God of blasphemy. And we are guilty of God before God of treason. Sin is blasphemy against God. Genesis 3:5, you will be like God, Eve was told. The essence of sin is our desire to be God. Sin is also treason. It's an act of rebellion against God's rightful rule in our lives. We've chosen to live in a kingdom of our own making where we make the rules. The exact same charges that Jesus faced at the judgment seat of Pilate and Caiaphas are the very same charges we would be facing before the judgment seat of Christ. But, because Jesus is our representative, he stands in our place. As the trial heads towards the final punishment of crucifixion, Jesus is no longer standing before these two men, brothers and sisters. No, he is actually standing before the judgment seat of God the Father in our place. And he is being declared a blasphemer and a traitor. He is being accused and condemned and punished for his treason. But he is doing it as a perfect human. He is doing it as one who has never sinned. He is doing it as one who stands in our place so that we do not have to be condemned, that we do not have to stand before the judgment of God. He is our representative. And so when he hears crucify him he hears it for you and me we learn that not only is Jesus a real man who suffers in our place and knows our suffering is a companion of our suffering and we not only learn that he is our representative we also learn that Jesus has a real kingdom because he is a real king. 1836 My kingdom I have a kingdom and it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's what kingdoms, that's what kings and kingdoms do. They fight to preserve property. They fight to take property. They fight to preserve their lives. If Jesus were a material king, a natural king, his servants would have fought. In fact, when one of his servants, his disciples, John, or, or Peter in, earlier in John, cuts off a servant's ear, what does Jesus do? He says, stop. That's not what my kingdom is about. Jesus has convinced Pilate that he is not a political king. He's convinced, Pilate, that he is not a threat to Rome, but he is a king who is a king of a spiritual kingdom that is not of this world. And he describes this kingdom in both negative and in positive. In 1836, it's a kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that invades the human heart. It's a kingdom that makes subjects of those who are blasphemers and who are traitors. It's a kingdom that changes people from within, not from without. Jesus' kingdom is not one led by an insurrectionist like Barabbas, who is a real traitor to Rome. His subjects do not fight physically to advance the kingdom. But his kingdom is positive. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, which is his way of saying yes. Yes. And for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. And to bear witness about myself. Jesus' kingdom is one that exists in the world. But is not of this world. His kingdom is defined by this. His mission to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness that there is life in his name. If you believe he is the son of God. The Messiah. That you will have a king who is a good and benevolent and loving king. Who does not treat his subjects as Pilate treated his subjects. As Rome treated their subjects. Because he is a spiritual king. Now. He does rule, and he does have a physical kingdom with subjects who are physical subjects. Jesus is a king, and his kingdom is real, and although it's not material, it is not a kingdom that is not active. It is active in this world. It is a kingdom that must be active in this world because it's a kingdom that is to witness to the truth of who Christ is. It is a kingdom is is to have subjects who obey the rules and laws of that kingdom. And it is only those subjects who obey the rules and laws of that kingdom that can witness to Christ being king, being the son of God, being the Messiah. It is incumbent upon us as subjects of this kingdom to live lives in obedience to his rule that the world may see as, and we can testify to who Christ is. And finally... Jesus has a kingdom with real subjects, and that's who we are. All who believe in Christ and know his voice and bear witness to the truth are subjects in his kingdom. This trial is the very establishment of the kingdom of God, specifically the church. It's the beginning. This, this trial is actually the beginning of Christ's exaltation. We wouldn't see a trial and the mockery and the suffering and the crucifixion and the death of Christ as his exaltation, but that's exactly what it is. It is what brings him glory. It's the beginning of his exaltation as he goes to the cross and dies for the sin of the world and rises from the dead and ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God to rule in his final glory. And we are subjects of this kingdom because we are of the church. Here in this section, in in chapter 19, here is the most profound and the most shameful statement, I think, in John's gospel. The Jewish leaders were presented with a scarred, beaten, bloodied, weakened man who could barely stand, but was declared sarcastically their king. And although these words by by Pilate were true, that he is the king of the Jews, the Jewish leaders with hatred and bloodlust in their hearts screamed, crucify him. In verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And here is is the most shameful answer in all of human history. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. Brothers and sisters, it was at that moment that the nation of Israel lost their inheritance before God. It was at that moment that the nation of Israel were no longer the people of God. It was the moment when the church began that we became the Israel of God. When Christ, as Christians, is our king. It is at that moment when they reject God as their king that human history changed. It was at that very moment that the church became the Israel of God, became the people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. In the midst of this tragic moment, in the midst of this shameful moment, God redeems. And he starts what we enjoy today, which is the family of God, the church. It was at this moment that all who call upon the name of Christ become citizens in the kingdom of God, citizens who are subject to his rule and his reign in our lives. Oh, we learn from this passage that Jesus is a real man. He is our representative man. He has a real kingdom and he has subjects in his kingdom. Now, but how do we bridge this? into our day and age? How do we go from 2,000 years ago into today, a passage like this? Well, I think we can learn a, a few things. First, we, we learn that we are subject to no other king. As Christians, we are subjects of a heavenly kingdom. And we are subject to no other king. No other king is to rule in our lives. We live in the world, but we are subjects of the kingdom of God. Our hope is not in an American nation, uh, conservatism, or a political party, or an election that's coming up that will put in the person we want. That is not where our hope lies. Our hope is in Christ. Jesus is the sovereign king. No earthly ruler has true power and authority. In verse 11, Jesus answered Pilate and says, You would have no authority over me at all, at all, unless it had been given to you from above. The only authority that exists in this world is the authority that God lends to rulers. Because he is the sovereign king over all. There is no kingdom. There is no country. There is no army. There is no political party. And there is no band of terrorists. There is nothing that can rule over God. And there is nothing that can rule over us. Because Christ is the one who is sovereign over all. Russell Moore says this in his book. Onward, Our priority is a theological vision of what it means to be the church in the world, of what it means to be human in the cosmos. We must put priority where Jesus put it, on the kingdom of God. But while we are kingdom first people, we are not a kingdom only people. Jesus told us to seek both the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. We pursue justice and mercy and well-being for those around us, including the social and political arenas. The church now has an opportunity to bear witness in a culture that often does not even pretend to share our values. Our end goal is not a Christian America. Either the made up past or the hope for future. Our end goal is the kingdom of Christ. Made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We are in Christ the heirs of this kingdom. That's who we are subjects to. That's whose laws and rules we obey. We are subjects to no other king. Secondly, our message of hope is the truth that Jesus is the only way to God. That's our message of hope. That's where we live. 1837. You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What is the truth? The truth is something that we have been repeating on and on in this series. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That, brothers and sisters, is our message Of hope. And those who are willing to listen to Jesus' voice can join his kingdom. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. My sheep know my voice. Those who, like Pilate, reject his voice who define their own truth as many do in our culture today, condemn themselves to standing before the judgment seat of Christ rather than having Christ stand in their place. But we must never compromise the truth or be fearful to stand for the truth. But rather, we must, like Jesus, witness and testify about Jesus being the truth. That's our mission. That's our responsibility as subjects in the kingdom of God. Because he has stood in our place. A sobering passage. But one that is filled with hope. Because God's sovereign plan of redemption is coming to pass. Father... Thank you for making us subjects in your kingdom. And thank you for being our king. Thank you for standing in our place before your judgment seat. Oh, Lord. Thank you for coming in the flesh. For taking our place. For suffering our pain. For being a companion to our suffering. Lord, help us, we pray, to be bold and to represent the truth, to bear witness of the truth that we may see your kingdom advance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.